0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ackman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ackman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective in the program today I want to think with you about theological liberalism and Modern Evangelicalism. The four academic degrees that I have earned are in history and historical theology. Therefore, the historical perspective on all of the issues of our day quite important to me. So in this perspective, I seek to give an important historical perspective to the origin and the development of 19th century theological liberalism. And then when I'm finished with that brief review, I would like to make application to what is occurring within certain parts of American evangelicalism. First of all, a brief review of the origins and development of theological liberalism. The shift really begins from orthodox theology. The theology that comes out of the Reformation, for example, is the 18th century Enlightenment. That shift occurs to the liberalism that I want to talk about in the 18th century, the 1700s. This altered the connection between faith and reason. Near the end of the Enlightenment, a very important philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant—he died in 1804—wrote several books that attempted to destroy the traditional arguments for God's existence. For Kant, there was no empirical way to answer questions about God, immortality, or human freedom. Kant, therefore, blocked the road to knowledge of God through reason. One could not know God, for there's no way to verify his existence rationally, he would argue. Religion, then, to Kant, was mostly human centered in its orientation and grounded in a sense of duty and obligation, ethics. To Kant, religion was not an objective set of beliefs rooted in God's revelation to man. Instead, one lived as if god existed and as if beliefs rooted in god's revelation to man and one were accountable then to that god personal religion was not based on revelation but a set of ethics not propositional theology as kant blocked the road to god through reason the only road left was the interior life the realm of subjective experience so the founder of theological liberalism, at least that's what he's called, Friedrich Schleiermacher, maintained that Christianity was not knowledge or propositional truth nor a system of ethics. It was a feeling of absolute dependence on God. That is the essence of Christianity, that feeling of absolute dependence. Gone was any affirmation of Christ's deity. Gone was his substitutionary atonement gone was propositional revelation from God. If Christianity is reduced to feeling, and Jesus was merely a suffering man, then the question is, can we trust the New Testament accounts of Jesus? David Strauss, who died in 1874, interjected the term myth into the discussion about the Gospel accounts. Strauss argued that the supernatural elements in the Gospels were not trustworthy The Gospels were not history, but mere reflections of the New Testament writers on what they wanted to believe about Jesus. If the New Testament contained myth, what then is the distinctive nature of Christianity? Theological liberalism reduced the Christian faith to righteous behavior grounded in the ethic of love. To Albrecht Ritschel, who died in 1889, the center of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God and its ethics. Further, Adolf von Harnock, who dies in 1930, asserted that the essence of the Christian faith was the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Was Christianity then unique? Well, not to liberal theology. From 1880 to 1920, in what was called the History of the Religion School in Germany, Christianity was regarded as a human religion, like all others that needed to be studied historically. Jesus was a historical figure, but not the one pictured in the New Testament. Liberal theology then began a quest for the historical Jesus. Since we cannot trust the New Testament, what is the ground on which we build our understanding of Jesus? Rudolf Bultmann, who died in 1976, called for the demythologizing of the Gospels to find that kernel of truth in christianity that jesus existed bultmann argued is about all that can be claimed as certain the anti-supernaturalism of the enlightenment reached its peak with Rudolf bultmann and dear people what i just summarized and these various kernels of and threads of evidence and argument and understanding about christianity is what is taught today in the typical seminary in the United States of America, the typical seminary in Western Europe. Jesus is not the God that's depicted in the gospel accounts. There is not a hell. The anti-supernatural elements that are just systemic to biblical Christianity must be set aside as we go on this quest for historical Jesus, to use Albert Schweitzer's famous uh, title of his book, That's where theological liberalism is today. So what I want to do now is apply this block of teaching to what's going on in evangelicalism. In a recent issue of Time Magazine, an article by John Meacham summarizes the new Christianity of Rob Bell. Meacham argues and offers some helpful information on the family and the background of Rob Bell. I found that very helpful for me in trying to understand who this man is. He does offer some positive affirmation of Bell's new book, something I cannot do. The new book is entitled Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Rob Bell suggests that the redemptive work of Jesus may be universal that all could have a place in heaven, whatever that turns out to be. As Meacham writes, Bell's arguments about heaven and hell raise doubts about the core of the evangelical worldview, changing the common understanding of salvation so much that Christianity becomes more of an ethical habit of mind than a faith based on divine revelation. They are John Meacham's words. Indeed, Rob Bell suggests, quote, I have long wondered if there is a massive shift coming in what it means to be a Christian. Something new is in the air. Close that quote. Now for me, someone who is trained and has written in the area of historical theology, all of this sounds hauntingly familiar. Early in the 20th century, a most gifted Protestant pastor and preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick became the epitome of American theological liberalism. He preached that we must abandon the literal truth of the Bible, the literal truth of the existence of hell. It was at this time that Fosdick and other liberals argued for Christianity's surrender its supernatural claims. Meacham maintains that Bell, this is a quote from Meacham's article in Time magazine, Bell is more at home with this expansive liberal tradition than he is with the old-time believers. He believes that Jesus, the Son of God, was sacrificed for the sins of humanity and that the prospect of a place of eternal torment seems irreconcilable with the God of love. Close that quote from John Meacham. Meacham is correct in his analysis because Bell states, quote, "...at the center of the Christian tradition since the first church." Have been a number who insist that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God. That is a direct quote from Rob Bell. For this reason, Bell's work is so significant, not because I approve of it, because it indicates that history is repeating itself again. Gary Dorian of Union Theological Seminary, the seminary that is the center of theological liberalism in this country, has observed, quote, it was the doctrine of hell that marked the first major departures from theological orthodoxy in the United States. The early liberals just could not and would not accept a doctrine of hell that included conscious eternal punishment and the pouring out of gossip wrath upon sin, close that quote. Therefore, they abandoned it. Rob Bell strongly contends, quote, the idea that part of humanity will spend forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance of anything better is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Again, that's a direct quote from Rob Bell. Theologian Albert Moeller correctly observes, quote, Bell's argument is centered. In his affirmation of God's loving character, but he alienates love from justice and holiness. This is the traditional liberal line. Love is divorced from holiness and becomes mere sentimentality. Bell wants to rescue God from any teaching that his wrath is poured out upon sin and sinners, certainly in any eternally conscious sense. But Bell also wants God to vindicate the victims of murder, rape, child abuse, and similar evil. He seems to not recognize that he has undercut his own story, leaving God unable or unwilling to bring true justice. Close that quote from Albert Moeller. Bell has abdicated biblical authority, denied biblical truth, and presented, in my judgment, a false gospel. It misleads sinners and fails to save. It also fails in its central aim to convince sinners to think better of God. The real gospel is the gospel that saves, the gospel that must be heard and believed if sinners are to be saved. Many years ago, H. Richard Niebuhr brilliantly distilled theological liberalism down to one sentence. Listen carefully to this sentence. Theological liberalism has a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Close that quote from H. Richard Niebuhr. Dear people, history is repeating itself. The same language, the same argument, the same sentiment that Rob Bell is using in this new book is the same argument and sentiment that we saw in the early 20th century. His book is almost exactly what Harry Emerson Fosdick was saying in the early 20th century. The champion, the eloquent speaker, the articulate preacher of theological liberalism saying the same thing. History is repeating itself. And we, within evangelicalism, had better sit up and take notice. This is not the gospel. This is theological liberalism, which has been the death knell of so many mainline Protestant denominations. By the grace of God, may theological liberalism not infiltrate its way into evangelicalism. If it does, and we allow it to happen— we will see modern evangelicalism go the way of the mainline denominations in the United States of America. And that is not a good thing. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is one of the most dangerous organizations in America right now, in my opinion. Its view of human life growing in the womb is reprehensible. Basically, for Planned Parenthood, The baby has no value until it exits the mother's womb. It values the rights of the woman more highly than the rights of the child in the womb. It stands against everything I hold dear as a Christian. Planned Parenthood annually receives about $363,200,000 in various government grants and contracts. $100 million comes from the federal government. The rest comes from various state funds. Congress recently debated ending all funding of Planned Parenthood because no matter how one examines the issue, the government is indirectly funding abortions that Planned Parenthood performs. One of the problems with this debate about Planned Parenthood, and especially this most recent one in the United States Congress, has been the use of facts and figures that are not always accurate or true. So in this perspective, permit me as accurately as I can be to distill down the facts about Planned Parenthood. As Christians, when we debate or present a position, we must be as accurate as we can be. It is a matter of integrity. Three basic facts. One, Planned Parenthood claims that only 3% of its health services are abortion services. In 2009, Planned Parenthood conducted 332,278 abortions. It has 3 million clients. Therefore, the correct percentage is 10% of its clients receive an abortion. Fact number two, Planned Parenthood does perform other services including 1.8 million people receiving cancer prevention treatment and 4 million receiving tests and treatments for sexually transmitted disease. Fact number three, the annual budget of Planned Parenthood is over $1 billion, with over $363 million provided by federal and state government grants and contracts. So over a third of its budget comes from government. It performed annually over 332,000 abortions, about 10% of its offered services. No matter how one views Planned Parenthood, it is a giant organization performing over 332,000 abortions and offering counsel that, in my judgment, does not fit with God's revelation. It would seem wise for the United States government to end all forms of funding for Planned Parenthood, It does not seem wise nor necessary for this organization to receive so much funding for such controversial services. They have the freedom within the United States to offer such services, but not using directly or indirectly taxpayer money of the United States. We must have a very critical, fact-based analysis and debate about Planned Parenthood. In my view, when all of the facts are presented, the case is compelling. The government should end its funding in all ways, direct and indirect, of Planned Parenthood. In our third and final perspective on today's program, I want to think with you about Islam and postmodern technology, some reflections. First of all, social networks have provided one of the several sources of energy for the pro-democracy movements in the Middle East that currently are going on. Information technology is changing the global balance of power. The Facebook generation helped significantly to bring down Hosni Mubarak of Egypt. One of the heroes of that same revolution in Egypt is the young Google executive, Wahil Gunim. However, as Niall Ferguson demonstrates in a recent article, Information technology is also providing opportunities for the enemies of freedom. How did the people of Afghanistan hear about the burning of the Quran by that strange pastor in Florida? Well, the Internet's the answer to that. Also consider that Facebook recently took down a page called the Third Intifada, which claimed that Judgment Day will be brought upon us only once the Muslims have killed all the Jews. That spot had 350,000 hits. One can now download encryption software, pictures, and 3GP format video clips with titles like A Martyr Utilizing Another Martyr by a Somali-based mujahideen. There is also the online magazine, which is growing in its level of interest, called Inspire. It's published by Al-Qaeda. It aims at inspiring jihadists in the West. It contains bomb-making instructions and publishes lists of people already on fatwa lists, which means they can be killed with the blessing of Allah. Islamic jihadists have seen the Arab Spring as a golden opportunity. The 29th March issue of Inspire records, quote, The revolutions that are currently shaking the thrones of dictator are good for Muslims, good for the mujahideen, but bad for the imperialists of the West and their henchmen in the Muslim world, close that quote. Fatwas are now posted regularly on Facebook. The call to jihad is now on Twitter, and select passages from the Quran are now available via email. The radical Islamists may want a 7th century caliphate restored in the Muslim world, but they are using the technology of the 21st century to get it. The Facebook generation is an incredibly complex generation. It's reshaping everything that's a part of our life, but it is also being utilized by radical Islam to accomplish its goal of restoring the seventh-century caliphate to Islam. Secondly, I would like to consider the theology of Islam versus the theology of biblical Christianity. I am convinced that Islam is so appealing to so many people because it offers clear black-and-white answers. It is a rigid, structured worldview that has very little theological tension. Allah is strictly and rigidly one God. There is no trinity. There is no substitutionary death of the Savior on the cross. Genuine biblical Christianity recognizes the reality of suffering, pain, death, and evil, but it offers an answer. Suffering is real, but our God understands our suffering. For that reason, he sent his son, Jesus. The second person of the Trinity added to his deity, humanity, and came to earth. His express purpose for the Incarnation was to become a victim of monstrous evil so that he could eradicate evil from this planet. He asks us to trust him explicitly when things do not make sense. He asks us to trust him with the tensions between his sovereignty and our free will responsibility when they seem to conflict. He asks us to accept that in a fallen world there are not always neat answers to complex questions. Just because someone is blind does not mean that his personal sin or that his parents caused that blindness. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 10. There is theological stress. There is theological tension in our faith. But at the same time, there is immense strength and fortitude to our faith. This Easter we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved us so much that he, the God-man, died, became a victim of torture, loneliness, unimaginable suffering, and a horrific death for us. As rebels, rebelling against his moral law, we deserve hell, but we instead receive eternal life, and the new heaven and the new earth, because our God loves us. No other worldview, no other world religion offers such hope. The complicated, difficult, often tension-filled theology of Christianity has the answer, and it is found in the cross and in the empty tomb. That is what Easter is all about, and it is imperative to remember That in Islam, there is no Easter. That attempt of Islam to have the rigid, strict, black-and-white answers does not really answer the questions of the human condition. It is only the cross and the empty tomb that offer the answers. It is imperative again, one more time, to remember that in Islam, there is no Easter. Praise the Lord that in biblical christianity easter is the supreme counting event of god's love for us rebellious fallen humanity and in that and because of his triumph over death we have hope we have salvation we have eternal life praise be to god on this blessed holiday of easter